We're grateful that you've come this morning for those tuning in at home or in our overflow room or here in the sanctuary. We're grateful that you've come to join us here at Redemption Hill Church. I'm one of the pastors here. My name is Stephen, and um, our delight and our joy this morning is found in Jesus Christ alone. What wondrous love is this that he died for our sins. This last week, Pastor J.D. and I were able to go to Shepherd's Conference, and that was an amazing blessing and encouragement to our hearts to be under the teaching of God's Word and to be challenged by God's Word. And one of the things that stood out to me that came out was several pastors throughout history have had different things etched um, or carved into their pulpits. And one that was mentioned was the phrase, let them see Jesus. Let them see Jesus. That's what we're about to do. We're going to look into God's word and we're going to ask God through prayer to let us see Jesus. So that like as Carrie read this morning that we would be transformed. We look forward to a day where we'll see him face to face. But he is changing us today and we need to see Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for sending your Son to die on the cross for our sins. And we ask this morning, Lord, that we would not be distracted with the cares of this world. We come with lots of tasks on our plate, lots of relationships in our minds. There's so many things in this world that distract us, but what we need this morning more than anything is to see your Son, Jesus Christ, to behold him. We ask that your spirit would take your word and that it would change your people for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' precious name, amen. I don't know about you guys, but I love music. Raise your hand if you like music. Okay, good, we've got most of us. Music is powerful. I don't know if you noticed this morning, but um, when we're singing the songs and the worship team is playing their different instruments, there's these moments that are extremely powerful where the musicians just do all their things. I'm more familiar with the drums myself, and they do the chikat, 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 and then boom, like everybody just does their own thing. The bass drops really low, right? And the, the guitarist is like chika, 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 and then they just all at the same time hit the same note. And that's this climactic moment where all the voices are just ringing in praise to God. And it's this jubilee that shakes our chest cavity. I mean, it, you feel it in your heart. And there's this amazing thing about music that there's different instruments that are playing different rhythms, different notes at different times, but they're all in unison together. I don't know if you've ever been to an orchestra before, but you see all these beautiful instruments lined up in a semicircle, and you've got a conductor in the middle who is organizing and setting the tempo for all these different instruments. And one time, uh, a conductor was asked, what is the hardest instrument to play in orchestra? And the conductor's answer was interesting, maybe not expected. He said, the hardest instrument to play is second fiddle. He said, it's second fiddle because... I've got tons of people who are extremely zealous, extremely desirous to play first fiddle, 
but I don't find a lot of people who are excited to play second. It's interesting that it's not the instrument itself that is difficult, but it's the humility required to play your part for the grand scheme of the music. That's what we're dealing with in our text this morning in Philippians. We're going to continue looking in Philippians chapter 2. And in, in this book of Philippians, we're called to be servants of Christ. And what we've been seeing at the end of chapter 1 and in chapter 2 is that we are called to a singular purpose. Our calling is to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to glorify Christ in a specific way. And Paul's been hammering on this idea of unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says if we are to walk in a manner worthy, what it looks like is being unified together in Jesus Christ. And what he's going to continue to show us this morning is that glorifying Christ happens through unity in Christ by the humility of Christ. Last week, uh, we ended chapter 1 and started into verse Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2, and we're going to continue verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2 this morning. At the end of chapter 1, Paul's concern was primarily on the opposition to the church at Philippi. There was conflict, there was resistance to the advancement of the gospel. And he says that they are to be standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel. And he doesn't want them to be frightened by any of their opponents. But what he continues to talk about in chapter 2 is not their external opposition, but rather their internal opposition within the household of faith. We can't control the actions or responses of others, but Scripture teaches us that the world is opposed to God. And therefore, it's opposed to God's people. And Jesus would remind his disciples of this in John chapter 15. He would say, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus wanted those who follow him not to forget the world's rejection of Christians is directly related to their root problem, their rejection primarily of Jesus Christ. But what tends to be more difficult, I think, for us as believers is to deal with fellow saints who live according to the world and not to Christ. When we see those who claim Christ as their master, yet live in ways that are rebellious to him, we often react strongly against them. And we should. But we should do it in love, and we should address sin and pursue holiness together But more often than not, we don't act in love towards one another. Our response is one of annoyance, of irritation and frustration, or even anger. In those moments, our minds are often drawn to the statement, they should know better. Does that sound familiar? Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7 of Matthew is helpful here. He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye and not notice the log that is in your own? Or how do you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly 
to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Please hear this next statement and what I mean by it clearly this morning. In entering the topic of humility, we need to set our hearts in submission to God's word. This sermon this morning is not for them, it's for you. This morning you're going to be challenged in your thinking as we talk about humility to say, man, I know who needs to be listening to this right now. I really hope so-and-so catch this message later. I'm going to send them the link afterwards. God's desire is to change your heart this morning through the power of his word by his spirit. So I'm going to give you a homework assignment during the message. Pray and ask God to help you to take captive your thoughts to think of others and rather ask God to transform your heart When you're thinking of somebody else, you think, if they were just humble, then I wouldn't have this problem. Their sin doesn't produce bad fruit in your heart. Your sin produces bad fruit in your heart. And what you need is to be taught by God's word what it looks like, what is humility by God's grace. We'll check in on the homework later. So, please do that. We saw last week in verse 1 of chapter 2 that our cause for unity is grace. And then in verse 2 we saw and identified that our call to unity is one that is joyful. But how are we to uphold unity? What characteristic must be evident in your life if you are to faithfully maintain unity for the sake of the gospel? Paul goes on to answer this very question in the following verses. Let's read verse 1 through 4 of chapter 2 of the book of Philippians, as we prepare by God's grace to understand and apply his word to our hearts. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What does it look like for us to live out gospel unity? It looks like humility. And specifically, Paul will go on to show us it's the humility of Christ. Our character of unity as servants of Christ is to be humility. The primary trait necessary to display gospel unity is humility. If we are to distill it down, we could summarize by simply saying, unity requires humility. If we are going to be unified for the glory of Christ, we must live in humility towards one another. Paul proceeds in verses 3 and 4 to lay out for us two sides of the coin of humility. The positive side and the negative side. Very simply, heads you win, tails you lose. This sort of teaching that contains both affirmations and denials allows those listening to more deeply comprehend the truth that's being communicated. He doesn't simply draw a line in the sand and say, don't cross that. He boxes in truth. 
He says, this is error. This is truth. Paul was not content with superficial understanding, and we should not be either. The first side of the coin of humility that Paul begins with is, tails you lose. And we know this because in verse 3 he says, do nothing. There's no room for any of this, he says. Nada, zip, zero, zilch. There are attitudes and actions that resist unity. So those things that resist unity must themselves be resisted. In explaining what is meant by being of the same mind in verse 2 and the same love and of a singular purpose, the first definitions are what it is not. These are things that humility rejects. The first trait that humility rejects is selfish ambition. This is not the first time Paul mentions selfish ambition. If you just look over to chapter 1, verse 17, Paul is actually explaining how the gospel of Christ is advancing through his imprisonment. And in verse 17, he says that there are some ill will preachers who proclaim Christ, he says, out of selfish ambition. And he defines what that looks like for us as he continues in verse 17. He says, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Selfish ambition pursues personal goals at all costs, especially the expense of others. It seeks to demote others in effort to promote self. But here, his definition in verse 17 is helpful for us because it also indicates that there is an insincerity. And in this text, what he's saying is they are insincere regarding the preaching of Christ. The ugliness of the sin of selfish ambition is not only how we treat others, but how we treat God. Selfish ambition aims to take advantages of God's purposes and plans for our own personal gain. This sort of individual aspiration and godless craving seeks to use both God and people for their own benefit. It has rightly been said that this sort of selfishness is the height of human fallenness. Do you remember Genesis chapter 3? Do you remember the last statement that Satan said to Eve? He said, you will be like God. And scripture says that Eve saw the fruit of the tree and that it was desirous to make one wise. That is selfish ambition. And friends, we do the same thing today. We take God's purposes or God's people and we use them for our own selfish pleasures. This is evidence, evidenced in both what we do and what we don't do. When we only serve in public ways, or when we make sure that it's publicly known the ways we're serving in private, you have selfish ambition. When you will only partner with others when you are given a position of authority or power, you have selfish ambition. When you segment people in the church into us and them, you have selfish ambition. When you think that everything would be better if others were just more like you, 
you have selfish ambition. This sort of selfishness leads to grumbling and disputes and complaining, which is exactly what he talks about in verse 14 of chapter 2. That was what was going on in the church at Philippi. And Paul is seeking to address these issues at a seedling because he knew what it would grow into and the dangers that it would cause to the church. If allowed to fester, it creates bitterness, anger, impatience, and division. Selfish ambition is opposed to unity, and if we are to uphold unity in Christ's church for his glory, we will need to reject selfish ambition. God's Spirit brings conviction of sin through his word. If by God's grace you see the seeds of selfish ambition in your life, you must repent and run to Christ. Don't attempt like Adam and Eve to hide your sin. Rather, hold it in the light. Trust that Christ has forgiven your sins and forsake your selfishness. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he, being God, is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Paul not only mentions that humility rejects selfish ambition, but he, he says humility also rejects conceit. If selfish ambition pursues personal goals, then conceit strives for personal glory. After addressing the danger of selfishness, Paul continues by banning self-glory. Conceit is egotistical arrogance and smug self-love. Paul would refer to this when he wrote to the church at Colossae. There were conceited teachers that were aiming to flaunt their sort of spiritual superiority. And they promoted this idea of angelic worship. Paul would write to this church warning against these false teachers and describes them in Colossians 2 verse 18. He says, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism or the worship of angels. Going on in detail about visions, they are puffed up without reason by their sensuous mind. Conceit is empty or vain glory. It is empty because it is pride without reason. It's arrogance that is not based on reality. We live in a day that uses virtual reality as forms of entertainment all the time. We'll watch uh, fictitious movies on 80-foot TV screens, and they use CGI and all these animated gimmicks to make people do things that in reality are really just not possible. Several kids, hopefully, and maybe young adults, play video games, right? Where you actually get to take a controller or a keyboard and you enter into this virtual reality. Maybe you pick a character and you're a soldier and you pick a weapons class and in an unrealistic fashion you enter a battlefield that is actually very confined and if you die you just go back to home base and you get to play again. Or maybe you play Mario Kart, right? And you're a driver and you're racing around and you're throwing banana peels and turtle shells in an effort to stop other vehicles so that you can win the race. 
what would happen if somebody drove to work that way? Right? If somebody drove to work and they said, you know what, I'm in a rush and these people are in my way, so I'm just going to rear end them and turn on my star power real quick and they're just going to blow up and I'm going to be able to get to work on time. That's not the reality in which we live. That's trying to live an imaginary circumstance in reality. That's what conceit is. Conceit is living out in reality the imaginary view of yourself. When we let anything other than God define how we think of ourselves, we are stepping into the sinking sand of conceit. One of the common ways Christians mask their conceit is by trusting their experience over God's revelation. The fact that we even entertain this concept is proof that we already think too highly of ourselves. Earlier we mentioned the last statement of the serpent, but do you remember the first statement he said to Eve? Did God really say? This isn't a question of clarification. Can you remind me what it was that God said? He's saying, did God really say? Is that really good of him? Is that right? And that question itself, posed to Eve, puts her in a position to decide whether God was right or not, based on her own experience. The temptation was presented on a silver platter of, what do you think? What if we contrast that with Jesus' temptation in the desert? Do you remember when Satan came and tempted Jesus? Every single time the living word of God responded, he said, it is written. What do you think? It is written. We need to trust in God's word. And when we seek to elevate our opinions, our instincts, or our insights, what we're doing essentially is rejecting God in pursuit of self-glory. And our flesh feeds on it. Do you see how this sort of traits, this sort of motivation of selfish ambition and conceit is diametrically opposed to the unity we are called to live out in Jesus Christ? When you are so concerned with your own glory, you will not care about God's. God's glory becomes either an obstacle to you, or it's an opportunity for your empty pride. There are two main categories that conceited pride often manifests itself. It's either self-love or self-pity. Both are about the glorification of self, though, and both take a view of oneself that is lacking the truth of God's word. For those who are full of self-love, you actually need to, according to God's word, be amazed at the sacrificial love of Christ. Romans 5, 7, and 8 says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God showed his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As a believer, you have experienced the steadfast, powerful, and triumphant love of an amazing God. God's love is not lacking for you. You need to forsake your prideful pursuit and humble yourself before a holy God. 
How about when your flesh is tempted towards self-pity? You need to remember the unmerited and marvelous gift of God's mercy. In God's grace and mercy, there is no room for self-loathing because you are rejoicing in God's abundant provision for you. Listen to Psalm 86, 15 and 16. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. For us to fight against pride in our hearts, we must both have a right view of God and consequently a right view of ourselves. This concept is crucial and critical to understanding biblical humility. I love how the psalmist pairs these truths in Psalm 70, verses 4 and 5. He says, May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, This is what's true about God. This is the delight of one who has experienced salvation. God is great. But notice the very next words. But I am poor and needy. God is great, but I am poor and needy. Listen to how he finishes out verse 5. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. When we see God rightly, and we see ourselves rightly, we will run to him. We will ask him to run to us. We won't get caught up thinking, woe is me, I can't do this, I'm so inadequate, insufficient, blah, 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 me, 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 right? We look to Christ. But if you have a low view of God, you also are going to be tempted to have a high view of yourself. When we have a view of God or ourselves that is not grounded in the truth of God's word, we are wallowing in empty conceit. If this is you this morning, lay aside your pride and cling to Christ. Selfish ambition and conceit are two traits that humility rejects because they are disastrous to the unity of Christ. But Paul proceeds in the second half of verse 3 and through 4 to turn the coin of humility over. To describe the biblical character of a servant of Christ. Tales showed us that humility rejects selfish pride. But heads provides what humility requires. Humility requires being a servant. Look with me in verse 3 through 4. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. To understand what humility requires, we need to know what Scripture says about the topic. The word humility can be rightly translated lowliness of mind. This is the antidote to our selfishness and pride. We must remember our creatureliness. That we are created and God alone is the creator. 
Proverbs recounts repeatedly the blessings of the humble character of Christ. Proverbs 16, 18, and 19 says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil of the proud. Proverbs 29, 23 says, One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Jesus in the New Testament would highlight humility in his first statement on his sermon on the mount. Matthew 5, 3, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus would also illustrate the necessity of humility in his parables. Recall the story of the Pharisees and the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. The two men, he says, went up to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee said, God, I thank you that I am not like these other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes on everything I get. But you know what the tax collector said? He says, standing far off, he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But rather he beat his chest and he said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Luke 18, 14, Jesus closes by saying, I tell you that this tax collector went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Even the apostles would carry on this important teaching in the epistles of the New Testament. Not just Paul, but James and Peter would go on to quote Proverbs 3.34 in their letters, reminding the churches that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is a huge and important theme throughout the pages of Scripture. But what does it mean? What does it mean to be lowly? Paul proceeds to describe what humility requires. And humility requires being a servant. And we see this in two ways, both in our attitudes and in our actions. First, let's look at a servant attitude. He says here in verse 3 that we are to count others more significant than yourselves. Genuine humility, regarding, uh, genuine humility re- requires regarding one another as more important. This word count means to consider or esteem or regard. This means more than simply having an opinion, but rather a firmly planted conviction based on truth. Humility requires the attitude of a servant. This means both the way we think and the way we feel towards one another. We ought to have a posture of a servant. And the truth to be believed according to Scripture is that others are to be more significant than you. The phrase more significant indicates an intense elevation in our thinking with the result of surpassing or being superior to. Clearly, this servant attitude towards others is foreign to our flesh. It is not foreign, though. 
to a man of God, to a servant of Christ. Paul would describe himself this way in the book of Ephesians. He says, he is the very least of all the saints. In 1 Timothy, he said that he is the chief or the foremost of sinners. How does a man who wrote half the New Testament, started a plethora of churches, and saw numerous people come to faith in Christ, not think of himself, I guess I'm kind of a big deal. I must be pretty important. I mean, look at, look at what happens. Clearly, it must be me. Listen to how Paul explains this in chapter 3 of Philippians. Just look over in chapter 3, starting in verse 4. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Catch this. For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth. That's what That's what that word is right there, surpassing, more important. The surpassing worth of what? Of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead." Paul saw Jesus, and it changed his life radically. It changed the way he thought about people. It changed the way he felt toward people. When you know the saving grace of Jesus Christ, it will change you. It will change your identity because you no longer live for yourself, but you will live for Christ only the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ produces this sort of fruit of humility. Maybe you're here listening this morning and you think, that stuff just doesn't work. I mean, let's get real. I've tried letting people in. I've tried deferring to others. And I just get burned. I don't get ahead. That selfish ambition and conceit stuff, that makes more sense to me. Look in your Bible with me. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. I want you to see and hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friend, this morning, if that's you, what you need to hear is that your pride is in rebellion to a holy God. That according to scripture, you are a sinner who needs to be saved, and Jesus humbled himself. He condescended. He came down and took on flesh. Not because he had any work to atone for himself, but because of your sin. And he obeyed fully his father. Even to the point of dying the humiliating, excruciating pain of a death on a cross. Humility is not weakness. Listen to how the story finishes. Therefore, verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The humiliation that Jesus exhibited brought exaltation and glory to the Father. And friends, if you will humble yourself under the hand of a mighty God, as Peter says, he will lift you up. This morning what you need is to reject the selfish pride in your heart and rejoice in Christ alone who can atone from your sins who can make you right with your creator. This gospel produces in God's people the sort of humility that protects unity within the body of Christ. Christian, this morning, do you think this way? Do you count others more significant than yourself? I think this is tested when opposing desires intersect. When needs of your time or energy come up, are you offended or are you willing to offer yourself? When others seek to serve you, are you critical of the way they serve or are you complimentary? Are you grateful? One of the greatest ways to test your heart is listening to your words or maybe even the lack thereof. Jesus taught that the overflow of the heart comes out of the mouth. If there is no evidence of compassion and care for other believers in your conversation, then there is an issue with your heart. If your thoughts must be heard in every room you enter, or if your words continue to reveal that you think the sun revolves around you, you need to evaluate your heart before a holy God. God is gracious. 
Know and express your need for his grace, and he alone can open your eyes and make you more like Jesus. Not only does humility require servant attitudes, as we saw, but in verse 4 we find that humility requires servant actions. Look again with me at verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Humility requires that each of us look out for one another. Paul does not leave anyone out here. This is the time we're checking on your homework. Let each of you. This is the passage that comes to mind in our flesh twists, right? Where we say, if they were more humble... Let me exhort you and encourage you to think through how is your pride at work in your heart? Everyone is called to walk in humility. And what's beautiful here is he targets not just the individual but the corporate aspect. He says each of you individually, but he says look out for one another. There's this individual and corporate aspect that Paul's putting together to say This is what helps unity. This is what promotes unity. The way we get to unity is love. The way we get to love is humility. But it requires you to personally make the effort. The effort described here in verse 4, if you look with me, is the word look. We are to watch out. We're to pay attention to not just the needs of fellow believers but their interests. Ah, I'm better at the needs part, but I don't know that I'm too interested in others' interests. Humility requires that you widen your horizon. And in a Western culture that promotes the individualistic consumer mentality, we as the church are called to live in a way that is different, a way that shows preference and honor to one another. Verse 4 is simply further explanation of what it looks like to think of others as more important. It requires not merely servant attitudes, but a servant action as well. It requires loving one another. As servants of Christ, we must be attentive to the interests of others. But Paul does not make some important, or he does, excuse me, make some important clarifying remarks. He says in this text, Not only your own interests, and he also says, but also. Christ honoring humility does not mean that I need to just have no desires or interests of my own. This is not asceticism. I need to just do what everybody else wants, and I just need to learn to be fine with it. No, that's actually a pagan ideology where they see desire as something that's evil and I just need to have no desires. If you are prone to get frustrated in pursuing that type of humility, it's because it's not real humility. A humility that expresses no desire and always does what everybody else wants is actually just people-pleasing. It's false humility. 
And you say, how, well, how do you know that? Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruit. Do you grow frustrated when there are competing desires within a group? Can you see a cycle in your life of every couple weeks or months, you kind of stew in your mind or even vent out loud to somebody, I just want everybody to be happy. That is people-pleasing, and it's not a posture of humility. You need to stop fearing man, and you need to grow in your fear of God. Only then will you be able to stop emotionally abusing people to satisfy your own desires. And you will be able to love others sacrificially for the glory of God. But here in verse 4, the focus primarily is on the phrase, the interests of others. In addition to engaging our eyes to look, we need to make sure that we don't forget our ears. We need to remember to listen not just merely observe from a distance. We need to engage with people and seek to know their interests. If you consistently repeat the phrase, well, you didn't tell me, so I didn't know. Or, I would have been happy to do that, but nobody asked me. Those statements are defensive, argumentative, and rooted in self-interest, not the interests of others. They are made in an effort to actually absolve one's self of the responsibility to love others. Let me be clear, humility does not require the superpower of mind reading. There really are things we don't know. We are finite. And it's even possible that if we knew them, we actually would genuinely love to help. The problem is not the words, it's the heart. When a believer is made aware of a perceived failure of love, the only God-honoring response is humility. It's humility. Humility actually deals with everything in both truth and love. Let me give you an example. A common one I heard from another believer at Shepherd's Conference this last week. Happens all the time in every church, everywhere. Someone said hi to a pastor, and he didn't respond. Or just another church member, or a family member, or somebody. They go to greet somebody, and they're like, hey, how are you doing? And they just look right past you for one, a million different reasons. And it's just like a dagger in your heart. So we can talk about from the perspective of the perceived failure, right? The person whose feelings are hurt. We can address that, but we're not going to this morning. In humility, very simply, ask questions and address it. But let's say somebody goes to that pastor or friend or person and says, hey, this is just eating at me. I'm, I, I tried to greet you, and I, I think you just totally missed me. What, what, what kind of happened there? What are ways that that individual could respond? Well, they could put the responsibility on the offended party. They could say, you should have just told me even though you just did. You should have told me. Why'd you stew about it for three weeks? They could avoid blame and just say, I, oh, I just, I didn't know. I didn't know. Don't get hurt. I, did, I had no idea. They could treat him as an enemy and say, well, you just, you didn't believe the best of me. You really, that's not really love. You should, you should believe the best of me there. Bible verse bullet, right? 
Or they can make an excuse. Man, I was just, I was so busy. I'm, I'm just really sorry. Excuses, guys, are monuments of nothingness. What would a humble response look like? Wow. Thank you so much for telling me that. And I am, I'm really sorry that happened. I'm sorry that, that that happened. I did not intend that. But I want you to know that I have no angst against you. I have nothing but love for you. And I'm so grateful that you came and talked to me about this. I think what we do is we, we get on the defensive mode. And when we put up that shield, there's no real ability for unity in that moment. What we need to do is humbly seek to listen and understand. And when you hear me, I'm not saying we bow to the tyranny of emotions. We deal with it in truth. But if we actually listened and sought to understand and said, man, I know what that feels like. I'm so sorry. I didn't sin against you. I don't have to deal with all that. But I can just sympathize and just say, man, I'm so sorry. I get what that feels like. And I love you enough to let you know there's nothing between us. Nothing. I held nothing against you. And I'm, I'm really, grateful, really grateful that we have this ability to have an open relationship where you can come and talk to me about anything. Thank you for doing that. I know that takes courage. And I love you as my brother and sister in Christ. That's what a humble response would look like. We need to humble ourselves before God and one another in this church. We need to lay down our weapons we use to defend our deadly sin of protecting our public perception of perfection. We need to remember who God is and who we are in light of that truth and what Christ has done for us. We are worse sinners than what anyone else in this room even knows. But we have an opportunity to joyfully experience God's grace in our weakness. And we get to display the glorious gospel of Christ by living in humility towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. For those who love Christ, they won't jockey for position within the church. Rather, they submit to Christ as their master. Remember earlier, Jesus says, a servant is not greater than his master. I was reminded this week of when Jesus is in the upper room. Before the Last Supper, his disciples come in and there's no servant present to wash their feet. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't delegate. He doesn't pick favorites. Hey, Judas is going to betray me anyway. Judas, I'm going to make you clean everybody's feet. What does he do? He takes an apron, he wraps it on, and he kneels down, the Son of God, to wash the mud off his disciples' feet. Knowing they would betray him, run from him as cowards the next day. He humbled himself by taking the form of a servant. And by God's grace, through the good news of the gospel, that's how we are called to live, as servants toward one another. When we live according to God's purposes for our lives, we will be willing to even take the lower place in order to serve one another. 
will be willing to stay engaged in the lives of fellow believers, all while fixing our eyes on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Biblical humility is contrary to our flesh, but God is glorified when by his grace we live in a way that evidences the transforming power of the Spirit of God, which is at work in his people. When we live in humility, the result will be unity. And that brings great glory to our great God. Unity requires humility. We need to know both sides of the coin of humility. And according to God's word, humility rejects selfish pride. And humility requires being a servant. May God use his word to Tune the instruments of our hearts and fill many seats in his orchestra so that by his grace we may in humble harmony declare in concert with one another the powerful glories of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you We thank you and praise you that you humbled yourself. You obeyed your heavenly Father all the way, even to the point of death. And you rose again victorious over sin, death, and the grave. Afterwards, you ascended into heaven and are seated on the throne. You have all authority, Lord. We ask that you would pour out your grace and mercy on your servants. That we would walk in humility and love towards one another. That we would not let sin stew in your church. That you would give us courage. You'd give us bravery to engage one another in a way that esteems one another more important than ourselves that this would not be a man-made effort, that we would not just try to have marching orders that we check the boxes, but Lord, we ask for your grace to give us a new heart. We need hearts that bleed to show Jesus Christ to one another. This isn't something that can be sustained or motivated out of friendship or mutual interests, but rather, Lord, we must Behold you. We must see Jesus and be changed from one degree of glory to another. And as we are changed, we will declare to the world what an amazing God you are, how great you are to save. We ask, Lord, that you would use your word by your Spirit's power, change us to be more like Jesus Christ for your glory and for our good. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.